0: This is the Hunt Quietly podcast. I'm Matt Rinella. How are you doing, Adam? Pretty good. It's um blisteringly cold here today in Massachusetts. I don't know. I don't know where you're calling in from, but um, you know, we're getting into um you know minus like 25 with wind chill, things like that yeah it's cold here as well.
1: well i'm i'm outside of pittsburgh northwest of pittsburgh oh nice yeah how about you
0: yeah i'm in uh, i'm in downtown boston okay um, yeah I, I we used to live in pennsylvania when my wife went to medical school there so um <laughs> i'm familiar with that area
1: yeah right on was it uh did you did you, did you live in western pa
0: yeah we lived um Right next to Philadelphia. So, oh, okay.
1: Oh, so you're on the you're on yeah. the other other side of the state. Yeah, we won't get into that, but <laughs> <laughs> it's like a different. It might still be a different world from Pittsburgh yeah. to Philly, but
0: that's what I hear.
1: Yeah. So we're here to talk about imperiled species and habitat loss, mm-hmm. and you did a a white paper, a research paper. So I think it's it's a really good paper i I reached out to you uh a while ago. <laughs> yeah. It took me a long time to get you scheduled. That was my fault, but uh I'm really glad we're talking now, so yeah, me too. Why don't you give us your background uh how you came to write the paper and then we'll get into the into the paper and i find I find like we've done these before. If we give the listener like a rundown of the paper, mm-hmm. what you did and break it down section by section versus me like asking you questions and going all over the place, it, it makes for a better listen. That way you can get a, the listeners can get a feel for the
0: paper. Makes sense. And we want to make sure that the listeners can follow what's going on. Yeah, of course, you'll have to you'll have to make sure I don't, you know, ramble off into some jargon that makes no sense to anyone who's not in the field. Um.
1: Yeah. No worries. So, yeah. what well, else? Sure, you sure. Give us your your background. And yeah.
0: so, I am a I'm a PhD student at Tufts University. I uh, graduated from Bowdoin College with a master's in biology and environmental science. And I did not master. Sorry, a, a, a bachelor's. And I did my master's at Yale uh, in environmental studies. And this paper. Was uh, uh, the product of my post master's work uh, when I worked with an organization called Defenders of Wildlife, um, and this is an organization that's based out of DC. It's a nonprofit, uh, and they do a huge amount of work with uh, the Endangered Species Act, mm-hmm. which is a law that is, you know, uh, I'm sure at least some of your familiars will be familiar. Listeners will be familiar with it, which is you know protections for, you know, in, endangered species in the United States. Um, and the thing that we were interested in uh, at Defenders was how essentially the law doesn't apply the same in in certain areas as it is in others. So, for example, if you're a federal land, uh, the law is actually applied differently than if you're not federally. Owned. Sure. Sure. Um, and so one of the things we were wondering is, you know, is the Endangered Species Act actually effective um, when it comes to trying to protect habitat for species that are in these areas? Uh, and these kind, that kind of question had been asked before. As you can imagine, it's a pretty important thing to know is a law actually doing what it's supposed to be doing you know pretty much anyone would want to know that right um and because otherwise you can you know otherwise is why i have the law uh the problem is that just due to scale you know you think about the number of species that are in the united states in a given moment uh you know depending on season and you know whether or not you know, birds are flying in and out and whether or not animals are moving in and out. Uh, if you think about, you know, how much distance, you know, space is required to do that, how much money, how much time, how much effort. Most of the most of the people who kind of looked at that question have done it on very small scales. Uh, you know, they, they do, you know, at a certain area and they say, we're looking at these species and we want to know how these species are affected by you know how, how you know the Native species act affects these species in this area um we had the benefit though uh that technology has advanced dramatically in the last you know in exponentially it, it keeps advancing you know faster and faster and faster and faster um and we had the advantage of having access to satellite technology yeah which is a phenomenal invention um and and satellite technology has been freely available to pretty much everyone on the planet since I think 2008 um there are all these different kinds of satellites that are uh, up and in orbit at any given moment taking pictures of the ground uh and uh, uh and that is constantly being updated and uploaded to the uh to the internet and that is freely available to anyone yeah um, at-
1: I, I saw in your paper uh, you used that heavily. We'll we'll get into that for, for sure because sure. I think that's because y- you looked at like thirty plus years of of mm-hmm. habitat via satellite imagery. Mm-hmm. Um, so before we go into the paper, uh, you're you're getting your PhD from Tufts University. That's right. And are, are you you're uh, you're currently working there as well, right?
0: yeah yeah so the way it works at tufts is we do the phd and we also teach and and that pays our salary and that yeah. tuition and things like that which is really nice <laughs> yeah absolutely it's, it's nice not to have to to, to pay tuition as a 30 year old
1: so i don't know if i told you when we talked on the phone i i i'm an environmental scientist and i've worked mm-hmm. in consulting for 20 plus years now so i think we'll we'll probably share some some ideas and some thoughts on on the laws and regulatory stuff that that goes on into the esa's and and whatnot Hmm. but having you worked for defenders are are they like you know i don't want to make this uh about them but this is a hunting podcast and are are i would imagine they're probably not
0: pro-hunting well, so the thing that I actually have encountered is most, so I don't, I, I can't speak for them specifically. Yeah. Um, but as as far as I understand it, most e- ecologists, meaning scientists who work specifically with, you know, the environment and animals and researcher and, and researching ecosystems, are actually, actually um, you know, hunting has been a huge part of the conservation world for, you know, at least a hundred years, you know? And, and, so a lot of the time, the actual, uh, might be hunters themselves. Um, you know, I worked with, I, I'm on the projects I'm working on now out in Nevada. um uh, I, I stay and work with a, uh, a, a retired fish and wildlife officer who, you know, hunts elk, Yeah. Uh, and, and so, and, and a lot of what we have today in terms of conservation, uh, is funded by hunting, uh, a lot of the species that, uh, have been the most successful in terms of their protections are because people want to be able to hunt them Yeah, and in order to hunt a species, there needs to be enough of it there that you can hunt. Um, and so when it comes to, you know, who likes hunting and who doesn't like hunting, I, I'm not actually sure if, if defenders, for example, are, are people who would fall on one side or the other. Now, they have a lot of different kinds of people working there. Um, there's the legal arm, which does a lot of lawsuits and things like that in order to enforce things like the environmental uh, or the ESA. Uh, and then there's like the scientific arm, and then they do a lot of research on endangered species, things like that. So I'm not actually sure. I I, I would guess that when it comes to hunting endangered species, they're probably against that. Um, yeah. But, but I would I would I would go out on a limb and suggest that most hunters would probably not want to hunt endangered species. Because well, then yeah. they are not get to hunt them anymore once they once they're once they're gone. <laughs> right.
1: And and I think from the hunting side of the argument, it's it's there's been a lot of talk about, you know, delisting wolves and delisting grizzly mm-hmm. bears. And then, you know, we've met our management objectives or population objectives, but then it, like the field goal post moves or the target moves, you know, they want to extend it out, not give the yeah, yeah. states regulatory authority to manage the the species, but we're not going to get into that. Um, no, I just no, want to make sure you're not going to get okay. any shit from, from them for coming on a hunting podcast.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I might get shit from somebody, um, but we, I feel like you can't, you can't t- talk on anything public nowadays without getting shit from somebody. So, you know, be that as it may. Well, no, cause I remember, you know, I, I think one of the first, um, one of the first, uh, 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 experiences I had with hunting, uh, and in terms of its connection to ecology, uh, which really actually made me understand what the difference was between, you know, uh, uh, people who are actually hunters and, and how they're perceived, or at least, you know, some people who want to go out and just kill something. Uh, and there's an actual big difference was the, it was a long time ago. Um, where was the Dallas Safari Club auctioning off the the black rhino um, yeah the and you know there was this massive uh, um uproar about it you know uh, and and on the surface she'd be going for those listeners who don't understand black rhinos are uh in incredibly endangered species in Africa um and so and, and they had start- like
1: an old male who wasn't viable who yeah, was exactly. Actually- Hurting the herd.
0: Yeah. And and he was the, the male that they were auctioning off the right to kill was going to have to be killed. Yeah. Because he was actively, you know, uh, because of that male, other rhinos were in at danger, in danger. And so um they the, the thought was this has to be done for an environmental reason. Why don't we raise some money while we're at it? Um, and and it was one of those things where the world is a lot more com- complicated than <laughs> than than at least than I realized back then. You know, that was yeah. one of them, that's yeah. right when I was getting started in environmental science. But um, I don't know if that answers your question. Does that? Answer yeah,
1: absolutely. Your <laughs> no, I, absolutely. And I think specifically that rhino went for three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Someone paid, mm-hmm. and. That money went to conservation of that species.
0: Oh, yeah. 100%. And
1: so I, well, I, I think know, at the end of the day, hopefully rational minds come together and we want the same thing. We want oh, animals yeah. on the landscape. And I don't speak for every hunter, but, mm-hmm. you know, I, I I think a lot of us feel the same way. We want a lot of different species on the landscape and oh, even species we don't hunt.
0: Mm-hmm. And that was, that was the thing that... Um, my master's advisor um, talked about when uh, when I was working with him, um, and one of the things he talked about was, if you automatically go, against, like, go up against everybody and, and say, you can't do this, you can't do that, it's not allowed at all, then you're never asked to come to the table to talk about it you know, you're shut out of every conversation and your point of view never gets across. Whereas if you're willing to discuss and, and, you know, and, and express your point of view, but in a way that's more respectful, you're much more likely to be asked to come and discuss things with people, you know, and I've taken, I took that to heart as an ecologist pretty, you know, I, at least I try to, you know, um, I, you know, as obviously I'm a East coast, uh, you know, millennial who I'll freely admit I have never hunted before. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I can't understand why someone would want to go hunting, you know, that that you want to, and, and in order to do that, you have to be open to discussions with people about that kind of thing. So. And that's how this
1: podcast, the Hunt Quietly podcast, was born. Uh, Matt Ranella, who's this is his podcast, he is a research ecologist. He saw a problem with hunting TV and how it exploits um, and incentivized hunting for the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. And so this podcast was born. I came on as a guest and... Matt asked me as we stayed in contact to to do episodes that pertain to access habitat, uh, hunting advocacy, and so that's where that's where I came in. So I, I'm I'm just telling you this, and so you you could get a feel for uh, what this podcast is. And I'm, right. I appreciate you, you you coming on because you're an ecologist. We want the same things. Oh, of course.
0: You know, and, and that's the thing. Like, we you want the same thing, and by agreeing that you want the same thing, um, you can get a lot done. I mean, and and, and you know, one of the one of the, another thing that really stuck with me was um, you know I, I read about there was a scientist who was working on a, 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 a something in Alaska. It was this uh, oil companies wanted a certain area? Uh, for development, and it turned out when you actually look at the research for that area, there are no animals there, and the oil companies had this other area that had a lot of animals that was less good for their oil development. So if you just do, if you give me this, I'll give you that. Sure. Then everyone wins out in the end, and and um, you know, and it, it's it's stuff like that where you go, just because they're not, they don't have the same experience as I do, doesn't mean that we can't come to an agreement that benefits the both of us. And so I I, I kind of see ecolo- like ecology and conservation in that way. Um, just want to make sure that everyone, you know, that, you know, if you're like a hunter, you feel like you can approach me and discuss with me things that concern you. And we can actually have a discussion about, you know, how to move forward and how to solve things out. And we'll realize that our you know, ideals are not in conflict. You know, we both want the same thing. Right. So let's, yeah, sorry. I don't mean to,
1: (laughs) no, 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 that's, that's awesome. That's good. Good, good background. And, and let's talk about your, your paper. U S imperiled species are most vulnerable to habitat loss on private lands. Mm -hmm. So give us the, the 30,000 foot level from, from the beginning to the conclusion, and then we'll dive deep into your your methodology definitely. and your definitely your, your data. So
0: I'll let you, I'll let you go. Yeah. So the main idea is by using satellite imagery, you can track how land has changed over time, and we know where all these habit we we know where all these species live. Uh, we know where they should be. So by just tracking how the land changes over time uh, in the areas where we know the species are, we can say uh, how habitat has has you know either been destroyed or or come back in those areas. Um, and we found that um, federally owned lands had the least amount of habitat loss, um, and places that. Uh, were not under any sort of um, uh, protection like federal, state, uh, or like conservation easement. Uh, had the most amount of habitat loss. Um, and that, and there are a lot more like you know nuances and how that works. Um, which you know uh, are are uh, uh we can get into a little bit more detail. In yeah.
1: Well, like. For example, if you do any sort of work where there's federal funds, yes, you go through uh, a strenuous environmental review, and mm-hmm. that could be habitat, threatened and endangered species, um, right. a plethora of different things you look at during an environmental assessment. And if you find impacts, then that bumps the regulatory authority up
0: mm-hmm. for that oversight. Absolutely- I believe that's called section seven. Um let me double check that. Uh, I think it's section seven of the environmental or the uh, endangered species act, uh, which is yeah, section seven. Yeah. And that's, that's what is used for for what you're talking about, these protections on yeah, lands.
1: And you if you go through a section seven consultation, which I have, by the way, it was one of my first jobs that was in Alaska. Oh yeah. Yeah, working on this project. And it was like a floating dock um for an oil refinery. And so my boss, who is a great mentor, he gives me the assignment to reach out to Fish and Wildlife for a Section Sevens consultation on the project. And there were stellar ziders in the area, and they uh-huh. were just like it was so short of a consultation, they're like. No, not your project isn't happening. <laughs> <laughs> so it was yeah. a, a big deal to go into to this other meeting and tell them why it's not happening when and I was just a little new to the to the industry, you know,
0: right out of college. Yeah. Well, side note, I I I'll probably pepper in these interesting facts all throughout <laughs> the thing, but like you know, with oil refineries and things like they don't like oil rigs out in the ocean those are actually really great um, birding spots where you can see all sorts of really cool birds because, you know, birds on their migration paths get blown around a lot and they might get lost. And so yeah. if you're out in the middle of the ocean and uh, uh, you got nowhere to go and suddenly boom, land. Right. <laughs> you yeah. There.
1: You're going to flock to it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So if any of your listeners are, uh, are on uh, oil platforms, they may want to, Keep an eye out for birds, particularly um, peregrine falcons, because some of the falcons have figured out that birds get blown there and they'll just sit there and wait and hunt. Take them off. So, sorry. <laughs> side, no. side note.
1: <laughs> so you're looking at imagery and you are. are so how, how's the review process go? Are you looking at like uh, the same imagery that you would find on Google Earth? Are you looking at something different? How was how that? How did you yeah. utilize that, that data?
0: So what Google Earth does is it 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 pulls in every bit of data that it can access uh from any satellite that it can, that it has and it gives you a picture like a like a continuous picture um while some of the data that is in Google Earth is used was used by us uh it we didn't use Google Earth <laughs> if that makes sense so yeah. so what we did is there's um, there, one, one of the major satellite programs is called Landsat, um, and it was developed and launched by the United States. Uh, and there are, of course, there are satellite programs all around the world. Then you can use any, you know, all of these, you know, the, the Europeans have a satellite, the Japanese have satellites, um, uh, all of which are available to not just to research to the general public. But we relied on the United States uh, satellite, which is, again, the Landsat program. Um, and that first launch in 1974. Uh, then you had uh, a couple of years where they were kind of like tinkering with it and figuring out things as they went. So you, you do have um, continuous coverage of the world since 1974. But only by like 1983, 84, did it actually get really good. Um, and the way satellites work is, um, taking a picture of the ground is, is true, but it's a little bit more complex than that. Um, they record light from multiple wavelengths. So you've got, you know, reds and blues and greens, then you've got infrared and you've got, uh, 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 you know, different types of infrared light. Um and all that information is stored in a single picture, um and uh and the satellite goes around and takes you know does a sweep of the Earth. Uh, it usually takes a couple of days, um and because of that, you've got essentially a continuous picture of how the Earth looks from the moment the United States launched the, the Landsat satellite to the present day. And um now nineteen eighty six I think it was it nineteen eighty six from your paper yes it, i
1: think 1986. It, you mentioned nineteen eighty six i
0: think I think it might have been nineteen eighty four but then nineteen eighty six was when like they finished like, we were able to get the 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 data in a way that we were satisfied, oh
1: okay, with. gotcha, but they were taking imagery from starting in eighty four
0: yeah, and so gotcha. there there have been multiple satellites um so there was the, you know, the, obviously they're numbered. She had like Landsat 4, Landsat, uh, Landsat 4 and 5, I think were together. Um, Landsat 7 had a bit of a problem where it exploded on the landing, on, on the takeoff pad. So it, no, no, I'm sorry, Landsat 6 exploded. Landsat 7, uh, I think it was Landsat 6 that exploded. Landsat 7 made it into the air, um, but developed a problem on its camera where these black bars would appear across the every picture it took um so <laughs> any any picture from landsat 7 was really not useful at least for our purposes but the really funny thing is the landsat 5 satellite which was the early 1990s uh that lasted for like 20 years 24 like and, and it wasn't supposed to last that long. It was supposed to go for a couple of years, um, but it managed to go for way long past its its uh, life expectancy until the most recent satellite got off the ground. Um, and so because <laughs> because Landsat five Landsat five you know <laughs> hung in there like a champ. Uh, we still have continuous coverage of the entire planet. Um, which is phenomenal. <laughs> wow. Uh, now, be, and, and so the way these uh, uh, satellites work is obviously you, you can't get um, super high definition coverage. Uh, I mean, you can nowadays, uh, but if you want to go back to the beginnings of the satellite era, uh, you've got, you know, photos where each individual pixel covers about, I think 30 by 30 meters on a, uh, in a square. Um, so obviously it's not going to, you're not going to be able to spy your neighbor. <laughs> um, yeah, but, but, but you could see the,
1: yeah, can see
0: the changes
1: degradation of the, the habitat.
0: Exactly. So, so um, I'm sorry. uh, yeah. So yeah, yeah. So you can see degradation of habitat and things like that. Now, uh, what we use is again not Google Earth. It's something called Google Earth Engine, uh, which is different from the program that a lot of people have on their laptops. Uh, and what Google Earth Engine is uh, is a, a it's a, a program where how do we call it, a it program? It, basically, what happened was a bunch of Google web developers uh, got around a table and said, you know, it really sucks to access these uh satellite images from a government website because you know the government is not really great at web design and you have to go through individual pictures to find the ones you want uh and google said we have all these images on our data on our databases on servers uh why don't we just come up with a way for people to access it and so what they did is they created this program earth engine where you basically just type in commands of what you want and the Google servers, which have all the data run everything for you. So as someone, you know, as a researcher who is working off of a shoestring budget, I can type into Google earth engine, uh, get me all the, all the landsat data for the entire country from 1986 to, you know, present day and split it up by year hit run walk away i've got it by the end of the day if so not it's almost like
1: hard. a satellite gis
0: yeah it's it is that you just write a query
1: hard. and it's pulling the data
0: yeah, so i I've, I've done um a lot of uh, i i was i did a lot of you know satellite work before this program came out um and it was a nightmare <laughs> You know, because, again, like, yes, you have to individually download pictures you want. um, But the thing you got to remember is the Earth is covered by clouds (laughs) a lot of the time. And, you know, light might, you know, bounce off of vapor in the atmosphere in certain ways. So not all of the images are going to be useful. You know, sometimes you'll get an image or a lot of the time you get an image that's covered by clouds. Um, and so one of the things that Earth Engine can do is it doesn't just grab picture by picture, it grabs pixel by pixel and says, okay, this pixel isn't great in, you know, uh, March 3rd, but if you place it with a pixel from March 8th, uh, uh, that is not covered by a cloud. So let's put that in there and then it goes to the next pixel. Oh, that's neat. So essentially you can have a continuous image of the earth's surface based on combining all the satellite images uh that you've got for that area. Um they did this incredible one of uh Chile. Uh, I think it was Chile. Was it Chile or Mexico? Sorry, it was it was Mexico. Um where they pulled together, um, I think it was like petabytes of data of the earth at like on a meter by meter resolution. And they created this massive meter by meter map of the entirety of Mexico. And that kind of analysis should have taken something like years of work. And by having it done on Google servers, the process took a day um Jeez. you know and so that's what i was remar- remarking about earlier in terms of how incredible technology is you know this this stuff was unthinkable you know even a decade ago um and that's really how uh, uh data that has been available to us since you know you know since the 1990s even you know even going back you know However many years you want to go, uh, data are can be reanalyzed in all sorts of ways that were unthinkable um, as new technologies come out. Right, it's pretty fantastic.
1: So you're you're seeing you're, you're getting this data from the satellites, and you determine that there's a, a loss of habitat over this time span of of thirty plus years mm-hmm. of three point six percent on federal lands and about 8.1% on private lands. Yeah. So let's talk about the the difference in, in the public versus private, but let's also talk about the imp- impacts mm-hmm. and how you did determine that there was a loss of habitat.
0: So um, we used a, it was a method out of, I think it was Oregon state, uh, Oregon state university where what you do is you look for, uh, changes in how light is, is reflecting back to the satellite when it takes the picture. Um, so there, the, one of the, one of the ways you measure habitat is with something called NDVI. And what it does is because something like vegetation, uh, reflects infrared light in very specific ways, you can do some math with the satellite image and come out with uh, a final picture where specific habitat things like trees and bushes are popping out in very particular ways a very particular signal Mm -hmm. Um, and essentially what you do is you get a number that tells you exactly you know how much vegetation is at that point you know how much greenness is at that point point. Um, and so uh, uh and that's one of the more common ways of analyzing satellite imagery from pictures uh, so what we did is we took uh this method from oregon state uh and looked for areas where The the NDVI changed rapidly, meaning, you know, if if there was a and not just rapidly, like if there was it it would compare how it was in the years prior and determine whether there was either a drop or an increase. Um, So if you had like stable habitat, it would mark that as a point until a certain time it would mark that as a okay there was a, a drop in habitat here if you had kind of slowly decreasing habitat it would also mark that out as being okay there's major differences here from the times that came before but then it would um, it would classify those as essentially once you once you had a spot where you had declines uh it wouldn't tell you whether or not it kept declining. Which is a binary: is there a decline here?
1: Gotcha. Um, yes so it's pulling no. the value. It's it's assigning the, a value based on the technique you just described with using the light.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Um, and and that
1: then NDVI. I'm reading right now: normalized difference vegetation index. Uh,
0: there's also like EVI and Um, You know, depending on what you want to do, there are all sorts of things that scientists use to to calculate. And it it just basically comes out to what what do they want to pop out of the image? You know, do you want urban landscapes to pop out of the image? Do you want trees to pop out? Do you want, you know, snow to pop out? And depending on math, you can make one of one or more of them pop out. So uh, on
1: public land. I would imagine the the impacts would be largely due to grazing or uh, recreation, whether that's hiking, off roading, hunting, you name it. Were you able to determine like the causality of of the impacts or the loss of
0: habitat? No, so that goes well. That goes beyond what we can do. All we can say, from at least from satellite imagery, and this is a, a, a known issue with with reliant over reliance on satellites is uh you you can't tell you all you can do is say something happened here but i can't tell you why unless it was like you know a wildfire those are pretty obvious um um and that's where you get into something called ground truthing whereas when yeah. you go to that location and say what's going on
1: well i saw um, in your in your study you you quantified it but you theoretically left it out the, the, the wildfire. um, Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. So we, we, we noticed, so we said that, you know uh, uh, we couldn't distinguish between uh, natural because one of the reasons why we took wildfires out of our analysis, which is what we did um, is because fire can be a conservation measure in and of its itself mm-hmm. um there's something called a prescribed burn where you go out and you set a fire specifically to help the environment um obviously this is done by professionals knowing you know you sure. know what they're doing sure. very specialized equipment don't go out and set fires <laughs> um but uh and the reason why you want to do this is because some species um can only reproduce in fire like pitch pine uh which is a, a species of tree that relies on fire to open its pine cones. Um, And so uh, we could not determine from a satellite whether, although we could tell, like say there was a fire here because we know everywhere there is a fire from satellite imagery. We can't say whether or not it was good fire that caused a subsequent growth in habitat or bad fire that caused... Ah, uh, decline in habitat. So we took all of those areas out of our analysis because we didn't want to make any conclusions based on what was happening with either good or bad fire.
1: And I would imagine that in some areas of the United States, that a fire impact is greatly different than in other areas. Because we we did a oh, podcast yeah. on rangeland habitat with Scott Hydebrink and uh, Kent undlin who are research or they're ecologists. And uh, they talked about the impacts of fire and in invasive species. Yeah. But I, w- I would imagine that would vary based on
0: the geographic location. Oh, 100%. You know, depends. And, and I feel like everything we talk about can vary based on <laughs> geographic location. You know, it, it really all depends on... Uh, It's unfortunate, but it's also incredible that there are all these complex things happening at the local scale. You know, it makes it makes our lives as ecologists awesome because we get to go out and, and research. You now there are people who spend their whole lives looking at, you know, very specific areas of the world that and never go outside that specific area and they become experts in that like one rangeland or something like that. Yeah. Um, But when you're when you're looking at that is something you sacrifice when you're looking at something as wide as the United States, you know, for as as your study region for a project like this, you know, you do sacrifice some measure of um, specificity, I guess, if that makes sense.
1: So you've mapped out the areas where threatened and endangered species exist. And then you overlay the impact losses or the habitat losses of those areas and you quantified it. Exactly, yeah. And so the private land was, what, three times that of of public land? Yes. And I would imagine that most of that would be from development or farming.
0: I I would... I would bet. Yeah. So one of the things we did is we also removed, um, crop plants yeah. from, and, and the reason why we did that. So, you know, expansion of farmlands, most likely going to be, uh, 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 you know, something that induced habitat loss. The problem is with this kind of analysis, when you have crop rotations, um, you essentially have, uh, uh, that spot changing you know the the amount of lights that's reflected all the time so uh you you get something uh, a a result based on the satellite imagery that's almost confused because you'll get um you know maybe the crop will the the land will lie fallow one year so there's just dirt in that location so boom destruction then maybe the next year you're growing like alfalfa and suddenly oh my gosh there's a huge Growth in that area. Oh, habitats come back, um, and so uh, it, it. In terms of the conclusions we can draw from those areas, it we really can't draw any conclusions. Uh, again, you need something like ground truthing, which we were not able to do. Um, so that's why we remove croplands from our final uh, 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 analysis. So, if anything, the private land. Uh, uh, the private land calculation of habitat loss might be underestimated. In fact, it probably is because we had to remove so much of, you know, something that we know does cause habitat destruction, which is expansion of croplands.
1: Yeah, and I think that's probably one that from a regulatory standpoint uh, gets overlooked because it's some of the exemptions you talk about where, you know, as long as you're not Dredging, or or filling a wetland, or you're yeah. impacting a stream bank, or you're not building anything on private land. You know you're you're farming mm. as you please.
0: And one of the and one, another thing about that is, like so one of the things that is it, this this next sentence is is kind of uh, uh, there's some disagreement on whether or not this happens, but in in places like that where you if you're say a farmer or a landowner and you go out and you see habitat that you know is supposed to be protected under the endangered species act for a particular species uh you might preemptively destroy it in order to ensure that the species that that is supposed to be living there doesn't come there and you don't have to deal with the esa It um,
1: well, happens I, I i absolutely i've seen yeah, it happen as you've seen Alton okay
0: yeah, yeah. Because if you look in the literature, there's some disagreement on whether or not that actually happens. But uh-huh. you know,
1: at what scale? Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I, it'd be hard to quantify. But I was working on a project in Alaska where a guy had, I don't know, it was a couple hundred acres. He wanted to build houses there, and we looked at, and we found on a preliminary uh, wetland in the middle of the property and we were out there doing a site walkthrough and the guy was like, I, I'll, that thing will be filled in like today. Yeah. We're like, no, don't, don't, don't do that. But if we would have said, go ahead, that sucker would have been filled in with dirt and that's oh, yeah,
0: Yeah. And, and that's, you know, and that is an issue when you're dealing, I mean, people have different uh, 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 things that they consider to be important. And, you know, what you and I consider to be important, which is the protection of endangered species, uh someone who you know needs that hole filled in uh and and so you kind of have to understand you know why someone might go might do that where they would just pretend that they didn't know and destroy the area and ask for forgiveness rather than permission um it happens that happens that's for sure
1: yeah so the the impacts to the public versus private does it translate to to game species? Did you did you do any overlay with with a threatened and endangered species where they they thrive and live with game species? Did anybody look at that at all?
0: Uh, so we didn't look at game species. Um, we focused mostly on in on endangered species themselves. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the protection of these species doesn't also help game species. Um, they are getting into something called a uh, community ecology, which is where you have, uh, 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 the presence of one species causes an effect that kind of reverberates throughout the landscape and you know, something else and causes something else to happen, which causes something else to happen, which causes something else to happen. Um, and, uh, uh so, because those are, because these species, you know, these species cannot exist in a vacuum. You know, something like a wolf has to eat something. Uh, And so it, and generally, if you're a wolf and white-tailed deer are gonna be your uh, uh, most prolific prey item on the landscape, go after white-tailed deer. And that causes uh, changes in behavior of white-tailed deer uh, which causes, you know, changes in, in how they approach, uh, 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 you know, their own foraging methods. Uh, so there are all these studies out here where the game species themselves, either the habitat protection helps the game species or the presence of the endangered species that we are protecting has an effect on the game species. Um, Uh, you know, and, and, and uh, either by controlling their populations or by altering their behavior. And so we didn't look at that. You know, we can't tell that kind of thing from satellite imagery. It has to be, that's where you start merging in real world, like on the ground. Boots on the ground. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You made, Um, you made a interesting point where you, you talked about species migrating, from mm-hmm. from impacted to say non-impacted and that made me think about like the correlation between public land from a hunter's perspective you know we we talk quite a bit about the impacts and the crowding that happens on public land and how important yeah. public land is to the hunter and when i was reading that i'm thinking to myself this is a good point because the private land has been impacted more from a habitat perspective, right. But the foot traffic during hunting season is pushing animals from private pub- public to private. So those species are taking even more of a beating because, arguably, oh, yeah. they could be going to less habitable properties.
0: Oh yeah. Well, and that's that's the big thing that uh, people always forget: uh, animals have no idea what our political boundaries are, you know, just because you've got a national park somewhere, it doesn't mean an animal knows that the national park is where it has to be. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the big, one of the big, uh, uh, studies in Yellowstone, um, I think Arthur Middleton, uh, was the one who figured this out was that the elk herds, you know, as far as I understand it, elk major hunting, uh, uh, uh game species, uh, the elk herds that are in Yellowstone migrate in and out of the park depending on the season. They don't care where the park ends and the public areas begin. They've got whole hunting herd, you know, hunt or not hunting, a uh, uh, herd areas, yeah, um, that are outside the park, and the wolves that are in the park follow the herd. Sure, which means you know, and so. You know, it's not just the hunters that are going into uh, uh, the public lands and the animals are going out to escape the hunters. The animals are going out because that's what they've always done. You know, that's how their uh, that's how their world was for, you know, generations. You know, they they had this, you know, I think to 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 kind of compare it to to how we would act. It's like if, you know, you suddenly had. A highway going between your bedroom and your kitchen. Uh, you, you know, and it just happened one day. Uh, you still got to get to your kitchen, sure. <laughs> um, and you don't really know that your kitchen's been taken by somebody else, uh, and you're not supposed to be there anymore. It's your kitchen. Yeah, so you're still and trying to
1: instinctually there. go there because that's yeah. where you go. That's where you go. <laughs>
0: yeah, um, and so you can actually. This is a big thing that um, I was concerned about, and I I wanted to make sure that we put into our discussion, which was or, or just into the the actually end you know, conclusions of the paper, uh, which was that you know just because the federal lands are showing less habitat loss doesn't mean that it doesn't have a a, a, it's not showing a bigger problem which is that you get something called fragmentation where the the habitat that is present is kind of getting broken up into squares you know that aren't connected to each other so even if the habitat that's there isn't it is like this is the same amount if it's not connected you'll still get animals that are kind of getting squeezed in and 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 uh losing uh, uh population size as you know as they're trying to maintain their historical like, patterns of behavior
1: yeah you talk uh, about that you're losing biodiversity your population are declining based on the impacts of the habitat those are just things that happen
0: yeah regardless regardless exactly um, in terms of game species, uh, you know things. Things again, going back to like white-tailed deer, they do really well because they, they they've done really well because they almost don't care about you know proper habitat. Uh, they just they go do really
1: well in fragmented habitat. Yeah, they're able yeah. to, and so.
0: Yeah. And so you've got a game species there that, you know, with habitat fragmentation, they, they're they doing just fine. And not only that, um, as the climate warms, they're predicted to do even better. Uh, which, you know, is a whole separate problem because then you've got, you know, deer tick populations going across with them, and but that's that's a whole other issue. Yeah. Uh, and so you got a species like that that the problem, you know, they, they're gonna do just fine. But then you'll get maybe um some grouse species, which I think is a game species, a game bird. Uh, grouse. Yeah, grouse. Yeah, grouse,
1: grouse are in trouble.
0: Yeah, and they're going to get squeezed even harder. Um, so, you know, it depends on what species you're talking about. You know, some, some species are very particular about what they need. Other species don't care. <laughs> um, right. And you'll see you know changes so, and 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 that's why you get um I don't know if the the, the there's something called the Yellowstone to Yukon project and though and what they're trying to do is they're trying to connect habitat from uh for you know species not just for game species but all these species in the area that and they're trying to con- buy habitat um, and connect it from the Yukon region to the Yellowstone region uh Yeah the
1: and- the American prairie that the, the that Scott Hydebrink is is a, a biologist for American Prairie and and we devoted a whole podcast to it. So if you get time, it'd probably be interesting to you to, to listen to.
0: Oh yeah, I'd love to. Yeah, I'd definitely listen to that. You know, and, and when you're talking about the protection of, of game species, like stuff like that is really gonna make a difference. Um, because when you know, because that that deals with the issue of um, fragmentation which i would argue is a, a, a just as big of a, a problem for for them as something like loss and destruction
1: yeah and that, that's what we're you know obviously you're you're talking about endangered species in your research but there's parallels if you're losing habitat that impacts endangered species there's a good probability you're losing habitat that that impacts game species yeah. it's
0: it's and they're the and they're, same, and and not only that there are endangered species that that would probably be great game species. Um, by helping them come back and getting them off the endangered species list, uh, and getting them to the point where they could be managed properly, you know, I'm sure hunters would love to go and hunt them.
1: Yeah, so, well, the wolves are an example where I, I don't know if I'm the minority, but some people don't want to see them. I understand it, but I yeah. would love to see them on the landscape. And I would also love would to be able to hunt them. Same with, with grizzly bears. I loved when I lived in Alaska, having them on the landscape, and I would love to see them thriving even more than they already are in the lower 48
0: and oh, have 100%. the opportunity
1: to to hunt them.
0: Yeah. Oh, definitely. Like the idea of, of having these animals back to the point where you can hunt them without worrying about what you about, without worrying about what you can do to the population, it would be, you know, it's a dream to have them back to the point where you can do that. Um, but, uh,
1: what species are you seeing from the endangered species list that are just like, it's dire. Um, does anything jump out at you? So, you had twenty four um, uh, species that you looked at.
0: Yeah, I, nothing jumps out at me off the top of my head. I, again, this paper was a while back; <laughs> it was twenty eighteen. I think, in terms of loss, uh, yeah, I, I gotta say, I don't, I don't remember.
1: <laughs> yeah, no worries. No, um, it's not. Dude, I figured I'd ask you. So, how did you de- come up with? Looking at the 24 spe- species?
0: So, what we were looking for were species whose distribution covered the most ground in the United States. Because, um, you know, there are a lot of endangered species on the endangered species list that have uh, like a range of, you know, a field in Pennsylvania yeah Uh, and and so when we're trying to quantify habitat loss across the united states it's not really helpful to us to have a field in pennsylvania um so what we did is we looked for uh, uh, species that had a range large enough that we could comfortably and confidently say we've got a vast majority of the country in our analysis and uh, and so that's what we were looking for. So we had things like the wolves, um, the Afflamato falcons, scrub jays, prairie dogs, uh, things like that. Yeah. So
1: would that be like for the wolves, would that be historical range or their current
0: range? So we use something called the gap uh, distribution, uh, which is something published by the USGS. And, what that does is it's, a, it's a, a binary model of should the wolves be here? Um, so it isn't quite their historic range uh, because wolves should be ubiquitous across the entire United States. Sure. Uh, but if if memory serves, what they do is they kind of, they, I, I, I think what it was is they measure where the wolves are and then, uh uh calculate what their distribution should be based on uh, uh certain environmental variables like habitat and weather variables and like temperature and things like then and precipitation and stuff like that um and that's what we used as our uh, uh, uh distribution now um, obviously it's not perfect um, Sure. Is.
1: like you said uh, they they went from coast to coast.
0: You know. Yeah. They, they, you know, and so, um, the, the, the gap distribution, uh, that was calculated for the wolves, uh, that covers, I think only, it's only in the West. Um, I think a little bit in, in the Northeast, but not a lot because the wolf distribution kind of, uh, goes up into Canada and kind of crosses over into, I think, Northern Maine, but, um, you know, I, I lived in Maine for, Four years. I don't ever remember seeing a wolf. Um, so yeah, so that does that answer your question?
1: Yeah, I, absolutely.
0: I've been rambling.
1: I no no ramb- no that that, that <laughs> absolutely does. So your results, we should just kind of quantify and summarize these your your results. Mm-hmm. So you looked at the ecological range, the administrative range, and and um the IUCN.
0: Yeah. So it, let me let me maybe explain.
1: Yeah, well, I was we, just gonna well, ask first, you
0: in ecological range versus administrative range. Um, so the ecological range was the, the gap distribution, which is what I what I, what I was talking okay. about. Um, the thing is uh, like I said earlier, the what what the government recognizes as the dis- as the distribution of an animal might be different than what the animal thinks it's a distribution um so when you go on to uh the fish and wildlife web uh, uh website that has ranges for uh these endangered species they'll give you like a polygon that says here's where they are um but when you look at the gap distribution the you know it might be bigger or smaller than that um plus the the polygon could cover you know cities. Well, they're not in the city, you know, it's just kind of a general here's where they should be. Um, so we basically did different analyses, uh treating those as different things, where we said, you know, how is habitat loss in the places where they should be, with which is you know, their ecological distribution, you know, based on habitat and temperature and, you know, uh, things like that. And how is habitat loss where the government thinks they are? Uh, That's the administrative range. Gotcha.
1: That makes more sense now.
0: Yeah. Um, And then we also included some species that are endangered species, but are not protected Under the Endangered Species Act, because there's something called the IUCN, which is an international list of endangered species. And some of the animals that are, you know, that are listed by the IUCN are not protected in in the United States. Um, And there are all sorts of reasons for why that might be, you know, political reasons, uh, 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 you know, legal reasons, yada, yada, yada. Um, yeah, you have like
1: the sage grouse, which we we talked about at length on right. the rangeland podcast. Yeah, because uh, I think ranks- they were
0: supposed to be listed in 2014, but they weren't. I think there was like a big fight about it. Um, yeah, yeah, and so and so the reason why we included species that uh, were endangered but not listed was because we wanted to make sure we wanted to establish essentially a control you know we wanted to say we wanted to say uh you know here are species here are areas that we know have endangered species and we also know are not covered by the endangered species act how does that compare with areas that have endangered species that are covered with the endangered species act you know do we see differences in protection uh and habitat loss in those areas um and uh we did see differences uh and not only that we saw differences in habitat loss uh before a species was protected and to after meaning once a species was listed on the endangered species act uh you had a lowered rate of habitat loss um, in those areas right
1: and and that's what i was thinking when i was reading that it actually benefits big game species to coexist with the threatened and endangered species because the habitat protection is more likely to take place exactly
0: yeah because you know again none of these species live in a vacuum they all rely on each other to 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 you know survive an ecosystem and so when you've got uh, habitat protections for endangered species that is going to really help all the game species that are around it.
1: Do you, do you know of any, do you know of any regulatory restrictions on recreation in areas where threatened endangered species live?
0: I, I don't, um, that that's a bit beyond my purview. Unfortunately. Yeah, I, I don't
1: either. That's why I, I figured I'd ask you because it did cross my mind that
0: yeah. the the only regulation I mean the only one that pops to mind right now is um um uh limitations on uh, cave spelunking um, to protect uh the bats the the United States bats from uh, white nose syndrome which is an invasive uh, uh invasive Fungus that's killed off, you know, something like 6 million bats in, geez, United States. Uh, And that was brought over by, they think, uh, cave spelunkers from, I think, Europe somewhere. Um, And and that started in New York. So that's the only thing I can think of where where, uh, um, recreation has been limited to try and keep the fungus from spreading.
1: Yeah, th- but that seems like it's very specific.
0: Yeah, it's a very specific thing. And yeah. and that's that's my only real experience with um limiting recreation. Uh I'm sure there is limitations to recreation. Um, you know, uh uh, but I I wouldn't be able to tell you what those could be.
1: Yeah, I think they in my experience they usually involve like motorized vehicles, yeah, but are usually and again I I'm I'm sure someone will correct me, but I, I don't know of any like foot traffic recreation that have that has been restricted
0: yeah i'm i'm not familiar with them you know, i i can't i mean public lands are public you know, they're
1: yeah and that's I, what I
0: foot traffic would be limited on in public areas
1: yeah and that's what we're we we tend to, to focus on here the importance of public lands to to the everyday hunter
0: now, if, if memory serves, there are areas of public lands that you can't access because you have to cross private land to get there. Um, yeah,
1: that's a huge that, deal.
0: Yeah, I think that's more something that would restrict um, hunting, you know, because you might legally be allowed to hunt in that private area or in that public area, but in order to but then you would break the law trying to get there because it's surrounded by uh by private enterprise. And as far as I know, it's intentional because then they don't have to buy that area themselves. They can just buy right. the area around. Them. We you know, we're looking that's whole,
1: Yeah, that's a whole can of worms, but we're 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 trying to dive into that on another podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, you that would be a great research project to look at the impacts and to see if they they correlate. Those landlocked public lands correlate with the with the impacts to private lands since they're
0: almost treated be, as such. Yeah, that would be actually a really interesting project. Someone should get on that. <laughs> yeah, I was going
1: to say, do, do you know of anybody doing similar research that looks at habitat loss for, for big game species?
0: Um, well, one of the things you were talking about, I know you and I were talking about before the podcast started was, uh, woods and woods is being really important for big game. Right. Sure. Yeah. Um, so there was a, a major study, um, where, and, and it's still kind of ongoing where they've been using earth engine to track, uh, uh, forest loss, not just in the United States, but across the planet. Um, and what they do, uh, and, and, um, And so, you know, so obviously because of that, you're tracking how woods and forest is lost. And that's really important for these game species. Um, But you can get essentially uh, uh, alerts on where loss is occurring in real time, um, which has been really helpful in, you know, kind of trying to stop deforestation efforts and trying to stop deforestation and create reforestation. But... I don't want to, like, go too far out on a limb. But, um, you know, studies like this, like like that study, I, I don't want to. Well, w- one of the get,
1: things we always I, hear is because. We, global Forest
0: Watch. That's who, that's who it is. The Global Forest Watch. They, they're global. They're really I'll have to great. look that up. Yeah.
1: But we. One of the things we hear is that. We need more hunters mm-hmm. and we all feel like we don't need more hunters. We just need more hunters to be active in advocacy
0: mm-hmm.
1: and people say well there were more hunters in say 1950 yeah okay yeah that was that was the case but there was also twice as much habitat in 1950 and so while the numbers have declined the numbers the number of habitat has has dwindled in in relationship to the comparison to 1950, so yeah, that's something that I want to dive more into in a, in another podcast. Just well, when, kinda... you say,
0: when you say you need more hunters, um, what do you mean by that? Like, so uh, when I when I was talking to the 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 friend of mine in Nevada who is a hunter, I remember he would complain that he would not be able to get a tag because of all the people who are you know out hunting that used to not be around. And so um not really sure. Could you maybe expand more on what you mean by that?
1: There's a movement that the R3 movement, recruitment, retention, and reactivation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so it that movement comes from the nonprofits mm-hmm. and the industry wanting to create more hunters because what do new hunters do?
0: They gotta go out and buy gear. Yeah. And they got to buy hunting licenses and they yeah gotta... and yeah. so
1: that movement started and it's it's not sustainable right and so the argument is well we need more hunters for the to have a political voice and there's other comparisons in other countries that that indicate well we really don't need cuz we only have 5% anyway so that's not right important. That's not a stronghold by any means. And um, so more hunters means, you know, more profits for those organizations. Right. And they threw out the argument, well, we had more hunters in 1950. True. But we also had more habitat.
0: Yeah. Correlation does not imply causality. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah.
1: Exactly. So that's sort of the, the, the stance with us that we just simply need to protect the habitat and more hunters doesn't do that. There's plenty yeah. of data that suggests that the impacts from, from the habitat loss to the stress on the animals is, is very detrimental.
0: I mean, counterpoint, you know, you had like, you know, in the 1800s, you had, you know, hunters out the wazoo and causing, you know, bison almost went extinct and, Passenger pigeon almost went extinct, and or did go extinct. And did go extinct, yeah, yeah. And that was that was because you know because hunters nowadays have a uh, you know they've been ingrained into the uh, this idea of you know environment and species and and like understanding like you know they've been a part of the conservation movement since the beginning of the conservation movement, um, but prior to the conservation movement. Uh, was it like market hunters you know we're going yeah. after otters and bison and pigeons and, and and you know everything if it everything. moved it yeah yeah so when you're talking about oh we need more hunters and you can easily and 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 they're talking about what happened in the 1950s well you can just easily point to the 1800s and say yeah well look what happened back then you had all that um, yeah and, I, I mean I... it's it, it's i i would argue it's not valid it's not like a it's not like a, a valid uh comparison but it is just as valid as saying "Well, look in the 1950s <laughs> right
1: well i think that the thing is you know you always hear hunting is conservation and that is true yeah but it's not entirely true yeah it doesn't always mean
0: conservation
1: right hunting to...
0: is is impactful yeah You are having an impact on, you know, on the environment, you know, you are doing stuff to it, you know, you can't have a completely negative or neutral impact hunt, you know. Sure. Yeah. But, you know, I'm always of the opinion, like, for example, if you're, um, you know, if you're hunting with like bow and arrow, I think that's going to be, I would argue that's probably beneficial. Uh, because if you fail and you miss, the animal that you hunted learns from the failure and will and that probably impact will in increase its chance at survival because it's learned. Okay, people are coming after me with a bow and arrow, and I can they're, see that it is and can. They're very the
1: adaptive. Oh yeah. Very adaptive to pressures that we as hunters put on them.
0: But then, you know, there's only so much space on the landscape. So, you know, if you're trying to explode the number of people hunting, you know, then then you're gonna run into you know there are only a certain number of tags available, there are only a certain number of uh, you know animals that are allowed to be hunted any given any given year, and then you'll have people get upset and oh, I got you know. I got four elk last year and I was only allowed to have one this year. I know oh, maybe next year I'll get skipped over entirely. And, you know, then you get, then you run into all sorts of legal problems. And, you know, I, I, I don't see that ending good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad as a, as a
1: non-hunter, you get it. And hopefully yeah. some of the hunters listening to that, to this, will realize that the problems that we're trying to, to, talk about or, are, are pretty evident even, even to a non-hunter.
0: So I think it, these, these problems don't have easy solutions. You know, if they're easy solutions, we would have solved them. And yeah. so saying getting more hunters will fix everything. It just strikes me as an easy solution and therefore probably not going to happen. <laughs>
1: well, there you go. I think, I think we could, we could probably wrap it up there. I, okay. I, uh, Want to thank you again for for coming on and talking about your paper and definitely uh, appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And if you ever do any research on big game species, please come and and get with us.
0: And you can oh, come definitely. on anytime. Yeah, I'll send people your way as I as I run into them because you know it's a lucrative business, a lucrative industry, big game. So there are going to be a lot of scientists studying it.
1: Right on. Well, I think we can end it there. Adam Eichenwald, thank you so much, sir. I appreciate it.
0: It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me.